John chapter 1. We've taught in Apollo's course over the past few weeks through the books of First and Second and Third John, and I always try to refrain from preaching in an area of the Bible where we're teaching an Apollo's course on, uh, mainly just because I I want to have my entire focus when we're teaching on it on the uh, vein of thought that we're looking at. But now that that's past, there's a message that God's laid on my heart I want to share with you tonight. First John chapter number one. Some of this may be. A little familiar to you if you've sat through that Apollo's course, but that'll be all right. You just go ahead and amen just like you've never heard it. When I say something, you go, ooh, ah, all right. We'll all, we'll all do okay tonight. First John chapter one, verse number one, the word of God says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested. We have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's notice the first two verses of chapter 2. John says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. May it be real and living and breathing and meaningful and powerful in our hearts and minds. And may we come to you with a heart humbled and open to the truth of the word. And may it speak, Lord, not just us generically as Christians, but to us specifically as children of God in a relationship between us and you, our Heavenly Father. May it deal with us according to thy will. and We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When you approach the book of 1 John, a little bit of context is appropriate. This is true really for any portion of the word of God, but it is particularly paramount with the book of 1 John. John is writing to a group of believers that are dealing with, they are in a bitter battle at this moment, with a heresy that is is promulgating in the local church that they're in. And that heresy was known as Gnosticism. Now, time would fail me to tell you everything I wish I could about Gnosticism and give you all of the flavor text and the context of everything that's transpiring. But much of modern heresy today in the church is even still now influenced by this ancient Gnostic error that existed in the first century church. You know, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. And that's true, not just good things, but bad things too. The devil's still telling the same lies that he's always told. He just repackages them for a new generation. And so Gnosticism could really be summarized in about three or four main errors that they push towards the people of God. Uh, One of those errors was there being a a fundamental uh, wickedness or wrongness or an intrinsic, uh, you know, wrong or badness or evilness in things that are material. In other words, they would say that all that is good is spiritual and all that is spiritual is good. 
They would say all that is evil is material and all that is material is evil. Now that sounds sort of attractive on face value because so much that this world offers is evil and uh, so much of material things can be a snare to the people of God. But we'll see that that led them to a very fundamental error concerning their concept of who God is and who Jesus is. Because if you're to believe that everything that's material is sinful, then what are you going to do with the doctrine of the Incarnation? The fact that God, who is a spirit, right? God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what John 4 says. That God was made flesh, manifested in flesh, walked amongst men, was tangible. Men could hug Him, they could hold Him, they could see Him, they could hear Him. This created a great problem for them doctrinally. And so the way they addressed this, and this was their second error, is they fundamentally redefined the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, there was a couple ways that they went about this, but the most popular one was this. They believed that Christ was a divine spirit and that Jesus was a regular human being, a regular man like you and me. And that at the point of his baptism, the Christ spirit descended upon him and made him divine. And then uh, when he hung upon the cross, the Christ spirit departed from him and he died as a human being. Uh, now, this is complete error and heresy to the nth degree. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that, hey, listen, a child was born, but a son was given. He was the son of God before, during, after. He's always been the son of God. He was the son of God, eternal past, is now, and always and forever will be. And the Bible makes it clear that God was manifest in the flesh. And that even now, the uh, humanity of Christ, though it is a humanity that has been energized by the power of the resurrection, that still he retains that human identity with the human uh, condition and with humankind. It says there's one God and one mediator between man, uh, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So in other words, this was an error of, of, of severe, severe problems for their doctrine. And what it caused them to do was to downgrade the deity of Jesus Christ. That's part of the reason John answers them the way that he does in the beginning of this chapter. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's saying, hey, don't tell us that he wasn't the Son of God. We handled him. We heard him. We were in his presence. So he's giving eyewitness testimony to this reality. By the way, this still exists today in those that would have the deity of Christ be just a metaphoric thing, just a figurative concept, that he was a regular human being and he was God's man, but he wasn't really God in the flesh. The devil's telling the same lies today that he told back then. What should be the Bible answer to that? Well, here's John, an eyewitness, a contemporary with the Lord Jesus who says we know that he was real. We saw him before he died. We saw him after he raised from the dead. We know who he is. He gives this eyewitness testimony. He says, for the life was manifested and we have seen it. What life? Eternal life is what he said. Uh, we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. In other words, talking again about the essential deity of Jesus Christ. It says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. Here was another problem the Gnostics uh, foisted upon the New Testament church. They believed, and this goes back to the very name Gnostic, they believed that they had an, a special extra scriptural revelation from God. Something you couldn't find in your Bible, but something God had just given them supernaturally, that they knew something more than the average believer did. And because of 
of that, they were in a special class unto themselves. John says, that's a bunch of nonsense. We're giving you the message that was delivered unto us, and it was delivered unto us so that you could have fellowship with us, us with you, and us with the Son, and us with the Father. In other words, God's not in the interest of setting up these barriers in the New Testament church, setting up some uh, clerical hierarchy, some priesthood, where you've got the initiated and then the uninitiated. In other words, uh, the cross is uh, level. The ground is at the foot of the cross. So that was one of the things that he dealt with. He said, these things write me unto you that your joy may be full. Then John begins to deal with something that was at the very heart of Gnostic error. One of the other errors that they promulgated was they redefined sin to such a degree that there was no meaningful definition for sin any longer. And you'll find all through the book of 1 John that John deals with this issue of sin in the life of the believer. It's reality and the way in which it should be dealt with, what God has done concerning sin and what the process is for our addressing it in our life. If you were to ask a Gnostic and say, well, do you believe in sin? They'd say, well, yeah, I believe in sin for you, just not for me. Part of that being a, a, a part of this special little group, part of that system in their mind was that they had been enlightened to such a degree that they could do things that the Bible called sin, but because they were so enlightened, it wasn't sin to them. We still have that same error today. Only people will say it this way. Well, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. Well, you may think that's wrong, but I don't think it's wrong. Listen, I'm just going to be frank with you. I'm not very interested in what you think is wrong or what I think is wrong. I'm interested in what God says is wrong. And so they basically redefined sin such that they would look at this little group of believers that they were oppressing and persecuting. They would say, well, you deal with sin because you're lesser than us. You deal with sin because you're not as enlightened as us. You deal with sin because you've not been promoted the way that we have spiritually. And we don't deal with that sin problem the way that you deal with it. And it's to that point that John writes these words before us. He wants to encourage believers uh, concerning the reality of sin, but also the removal of sin in their life. And let me just make this uh, passing statement, then we'll get into the preaching tonight. Every believer is going to have to deal with sin in their own life. If you don't deal with it, it won't be because you don't have it. It'll simply be because you refuse to deal with it. Sin is a reality for every single believer. There's not a single one of us that walks perfectly. We all sin. We all do unrighteously. There's none righteous. No, not one. And so you as a believer are either going to learn how to deal with sin in your life in a healthy way, in a biblical way, or you're going to refuse to deal with it and it's going to have dominion over you. I'll be honest with you, a great many of believers today simply don't deal with sin in their life. They sin, they do wrong, and then they just sweep it under the rug. They try to muscle down their conscience. They try to ignore what the Holy Spirit says to them. And they try to go on and operate as though everything is just the way it was before they committed that sin. I'm here to tell you tonight, beloved, that's not the way to deal with sin in your life. You might as well learn how the Bible says that we are to deal with sin. And that's what I want to preach to you on for just a few moments tonight. I want you to notice three thoughts in these verses, and particularly from verse 5 of chapter 1 down to verse 2 of chapter number 2. And there's basically three thoughts we could look at. I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. The first is a fundamental principle that John deals with in verses 5, 6, and 7. Then in verses 8 and 10, as bookends to that great verse 9 that we all love, we see an essential prerequisite. There's something you're going to need to deal with sin in your life. And then verse 9 and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 give us a simple process for dealing with sin in our lives. So what could we say first off about that fundamental principle? Look back with me at verse 5. John says this, This then is the message that we have heard of him and declare unto you. Now let's just break that down. He's saying this is fundamentally what Jesus Christ taught us. 
if we were to distill it down into a basic principle and deliver it to you. This is the message. And this is what he wanted us to tell you. It's a simple message, but it is paramount to the Christian life. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we understand that as John deals with these concepts of light and darkness, while certainly there is a material biological concept here, what's the first thing God did when he created the heavens and the earth? What's the first thing he spoke into existence? He said, let there be light. We could have a lot of metaphysical conversations about the properties of light and how that parallels with the nature of God, and certainly that can be edifying from time to time. But when we talk about light and darkness here, what John is really speaking of figuratively is unrighteousness and righteousness. Light being righteousness and darkness being unrighteousness. We understand, in fact, that even these principles in the material world are meant to be but shadows, but pictures of those spiritual realities. We could maybe dumb it down a little more by saying this. There are some things God is and there are some things God is not. And the sooner we recognize that truth and reality, that there is a distinction, there is a boundary to how we define and understand who God is, the sooner that we will get honest with our lives, honest with ourselves, and see ourselves grow in our Christian walk. This is the fundamental truth. God is light, meaning He's righteous, meaning He's holy, meaning there are things that are, that are essential to His nature and to His character and to His personality. And in that, there is no intermingling. There is no inner fellowship between darkness in any way. We could say it this way, that God is perfect and in him is no sin. That God is righteous and in him is no unrighteousness. That God is holy and in him is no wickedness or unholiness. But really, John is just boiling things down to a fundamental principle. What do we believe God is? Who do we believe God is? Or we might say it this way, who has God revealed himself to be? He has revealed himself to be an immortal and invincible and eternal creature of perfect, impeccable righteousness. Everything that we know about God suggests to us that there is not an ounce of moral compromise in him. That he is completely and utterly stalwart in his holiness and in his righteousness. Now you say, well, preacher, this is just elementary stuff. I mean, I learned this when I was a kid in Sunday school. God bless you. I'm proud for you. But isn't it funny how quickly we can begin to blur those lines when it comes to our own personal morality? He was dealing with a group of people that were saying, oh, yeah, we know God, but they were living wickedly. A group of people, they were saying, oh, yeah, we pray to God, but they were living wickedly. A group of people that were saying, oh, yeah, we walk with God, but they were walking in unrighteousness. We, we could say it this way. They were claiming to walk in the light, but all the while their walk was nothing but darkness through and through. So in other words, there's an essential principle here, and that is this. What's the essence of it? The essence is God is righteous. And if we're living according to the word of God and the truth of God, that's going to beget righteousness in our life. We cannot claim to be walking in unrighteousness and living in a way that is pleasing to God. Now, this comes to the very heart of our Christianity. How honest are we willing to be about our behavior? How honest are we willing to be about the way that we're living? He deals with this essential principle. Then verse 6, he deals with the exposure of this principle. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, this reveals something. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. I'm not going to ask you to respond in a participatory way, but I think we probably could. We'd all be on the same page if I was to ask you this question. Does God ever lie? I promise every one of you would say, well, preacher, of course God does not lie. In fact, we have a, a, a mutually exclusive prospect before us. We can either believe that man is truthful and that God is a liar or that God is truthful and man is a liar. 
And since God never changes, and we are to believe from the truth of the Word of God that He does not lie, that He speaks only truth. In fact, the Bible says it in no uncertain terms that, that it's impossible for God to lie. And if there is then some discrepancy between the way we're living, what we're saying about us, and what God's saying about us, we now have a choice that we must make. Who's lying? It comes down to a basic, easy, easy equation here, and that's this. If a person claims to be living for God, but their life is not in accordance with the truth of God, then it is not God that's lying, it is them that's lying. Now you say, well, okay, preacher, that's good. I already knew that. You could have texted this to me. I could have sat at home. Maybe that's true. It would have saved us both some time, wouldn't it? But uh, here's the here's the question I have. That's all good and well when it's talking about somebody else's life. But are you willing to be so forthright when it's talking about your life? If your life is not in accordance with the truth of the Word of God, how quickly we are to try to change and shape and bend and mold and twist and remake the Word of God to fit our behavior instead of just being honest enough to admit that we've not been living in the way that pleases God. You see, that's the wonderful thing about truth. Truth is an exposing thing. The Word of God, that's why it's light, right? Is because it, it exposes, it reveals things. And as we live our life, you know, the Bible's likened unto a plumb line or, or, or unto something, a straight wall or a straight edge against which all that is crooked can be exposed. You can be looking at a surface and it looks straight to your eye, but when you lay that measuring tool beside it, all of a sudden all the bows and turns and crooks uh, are exposed. Now you can see it for what it is. This basic principle that God is a righteous God provides a means to lay the line against our life and ask ourselves, does my life line up with the truth of the Word of God? If it does not, we then are faced with a choice. We can lie to others, we can lie to God, we can lie to ourselves and try to soothe our conscience. Or we can be sincere enough to admit, you know, maybe the problem's not with God, maybe the problem's with me. You're watching society boil up all around you right now with people that deny God and want to scream at the heavens about how wrong God is because He does not condone and endorse and sanction the way that they're living. Now, what's troubling is it's not just the lost that do it, it's believers that do it as well. We may not get signs and pick it out in front of some justice's house. We may not go and burn down a building, or maybe you do. I don't know what you do in your free time. But most of the time, the way that we deal with it is in our own life, just simply twisting the truth enough to make enough room for our sin to dwell alongside us. I see the exposure of this principle, but notice the expectation of it, verse number 7. He says, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Now, I would imagine John had a very simple illustration in his mind of people walking a path, one part of it covered in shadow, one part of it exposed to the bright daylight, and claiming that they're walking together when they are walking in two separate pathways. And he says it very simply, that the reason that God shows us this is not so that we can walk the dark path and be ashamed at where we're dwelling, but rather so that we can get over on the light path and walk with Him and have fellowship. Can I tell you something about the way the Lord works? The Lord does not show you what's wrong in your life to make you feel wrong. He shows you what's wrong in your life to help you get right. The expectation is not that we just live in perpetual shame and guilt and discouragement over the fact that we're broken sinners. Of course, we are broken sinners. But the intention is that God's saying, I'm showing you what's right so that you can live right. I'm showing you what's right so that you can do right. Can I just tell you this tonight? You may have given up, but God has not given up. 
You may have given up on the hope of walking and living righteously. And I'm not talking about living in moral perfection. We understand, and John's going to deal with that here in just a moment, about those that claim that they have no sin. They lie and do not the truth. But before he ever gets to that, he wants to shore up the hope and encouragement of these believers by reminding them that the whole reason God deals with us in our life about our sin is not because He's done with us, it's because He's not done with us. Hey, when the Holy Ghost convicts you, it's not because God's mad at you, it's because He loves you. When the Word of God just hits you right between the eyeballs, it's not because God's mad at you, it's because He loves you. When God deals with us, it's not because He's done with us, it's not because He says you're walking in darkness and I'm washing my hands of you, but it's because He's saying I'm over here in the light and I want you walking where I'm walking as well. The expectation is that we get right, that we do right, that we live right. So he basically lays out this fundamental principle, something that everybody that is a Bible believer should be able to agree with, that God is light, that in him is no darkness at all, that God is a perfect God. And then not only that, but that God is a truthful God. Verse number six, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. It's not him that's lying. It's we that are lying and do not the truth. And that God is a merciful God, that he has a desire that we walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we do that, he says, we have fellowship one with another. Now, somebody's going to say, but preacher, we're still going to mess up. Well, that's why John says this, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Listen, God had a standard of perfection, and that standard was answered on the cross of Calvary. In your life as a child of God, God's not asking you to be stainless and spotless and perfect. He's not asking you to execute Christianity with no errors whatsoever. That's not what God's asking of you. He's asking of you to love Him enough and to be sincere enough that when you do mess up, you come to Him and get it right and do right because you love Him enough that you want to please Him and you want to walk with Him. So we see a fundamental principle in verses 5, 6, and 7. And probably all of us would say, well, preacher, I can agree with everything that you've said. I believe God's perfect. I believe He wants us to walk with Him. I know that sometimes I mess up. But what now is needed? My life is in disarray. I've let this sin into my life. And by the way, disarray is a, is a relative word. Disarray doesn't mean way out of whack. You could be a little out of whack and things be in disarray. Uh, I'm not saying that there's anybody here tonight that's uh, life is ensnared, and it could be, and, and we may not even know it. But I'm not suggesting there's anyone here tonight that is in the gall of deep and dark and depraved sin. You might have just let, let something in your life that has begun to draw your affection away from the Lord. And you say, well, preacher, I want to fix this thing. I want it to be right in my life. How do I do that? Well, we see not only a fundamental principle, but verses 8 and 10 deal with an essential prerequisite. So there's something that's going to be needed. If you're going to deal with sin in your life, there's something that is going to be needed. There's already been a sacrifice given. There's already an advocate by the throne. There's already a means of praying and talking to the Lord. So what could be left, preacher, that would be needed? Well, verses 8 and 10 tell us. Verse number 8 begins this way. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 sort of reiterates this truth from a different perspective. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So I would say that essential prerequisite is this, honesty. Honesty. No man has ever got right with God and, and, and refused to be honest in the process. You've got to tell the truth. In fact, when we talk about verse 9, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but when it says if we confess our sins, it means, of course, to agree with God about them. And I, I agree with that definition, but I would even add this to it, to tell the truth about them. You've got to be willing to tell the truth about your sin. 
You've got to be willing to tell God what your sin is and agree with Him that your sin is what He says that it is. You've got to be honest. Verse 8 deals with a first type of honesty, and it's honesty about our nature. He says, if we say that we have no sin, he's speaking of the essential depravity of a fallen man. The nature of fallen man is a sinful nature. It's been said before and it's been pointed out. I don't know. There's been various. Billy Graham said it one time. I'm sure other people have said it. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm glad everything I've ever said is not recorded and everybody pays attention to it. I'd probably have some things I've said that I'd reword. But but he made the comment one time, and I'm sure a bunch of other preachers have made the comment, too, that uh, a person uh, that is a sinner, that they are a sinner because they sin. And preachers were quick to jump on that and point out, rightfully so, that that's erroneous. That's backwards, in fact. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sin. It is our nature to do so. Now, remember, these Gnostics that John is is battling here in this local church, they didn't believe they were sinners. In fact, they believed they had been enlightened above sin, that they had transcended this elementary, foolish, naive concept of what was right and what was wrong. Now, again, if the devil ain't telling the same lies today, I'll buy you a Coke. I mean, it's the exact same thing that he's saying today, that all, more, all morality is relative and there's really no such thing as sin and, and that it's foolish and naive and superstition to believe that sin even is such a thing. How naive and small-minded you must be. And they can believe that one of these days they're going to stand before him that is perfect, unadulterated, unmitigated light and their darkness is going to be exposed. One of these days they're going to have to answer to him who is all righteous. And they're going to have to stand before him who is perfectly holy. But for the child of God, it's enough to take God at his word and the word of God. And what does the word of God say? That there's none righteous, no, not one. That we were shaped in iniquity. That at our very core, at our very uh, the center of our being is unrighteousness and wickedness in our natural condition. That in our flesh dwelleth no good thing. Here's what I'm getting at. You've got to be honest about who and what you are. You've got to be honest in admitting to God that you have it in you to commit any sin imaginable, and that but for the restraining influence of the Holy Ghost and the sanctifying power of the Word of God, that you would be committing those same sins that all those wretched, wicked, awful people that we often point out and think we'd never do what they do. Oh, yeah, you would. you got the same flesh that they've got. you got the same wickedness that they've got. John says the first thing we have to do is be honest in admitting that our nature is sin, that that's who and what we are that we are predisposed to do wrong and unrighteous. We learn it in children at a very young age. The one word you'll never have to teach a child is the word no. They instinctively, automatically know to refuse, to not bend, to not obey, to not acquiesce. Why is that? It's in the nature of mankind to rebel and revolt against authority. So John says, you've got to be honest. If we say that we have no sin, here's all that's accomplished. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, we have not changed the equation at all. All we've done is deceive ourselves. So the first thing we have to be honest about is our nature. Secondly, there must be honesty about our behavior. Notice how the language changes in verse 10. In verse 8, it's if we say that we have no sin. In other words, that it's not in us, that it's not in our nature. But in verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, somebody's going to say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. What if somebody has not committed sin? Should they just imagine and impute to themselves bad behavior that they've not committed? No, that's not what John's dealing with. He's dealing with people that are struggling with the concept of sin. And he's dealing with a group of believers that are being constantly harried and harassed by a group of people that are saying, well, maybe you've sinned, 
but we've never sinned. John says a person can say they've never sinned, but if they do, they make God a liar. They blaspheme the Lord. It's a sacrilegious thing. We have a choice. We can either agree with what God says about us or claim that He is a liar. There is no middle ground in this conversation. So in other words, we have to be honest with God about not just our nature, who and what we are, but our behavior. And if you're going to deal with sin in your life, you fundamentally are going to have to be willing to admit when you've sinned. If your pride will not allow you to, then your pride is going to cripple your Christian growth. If your pride and arrogance keeps you from being honest with the Lord about admitting when you've done something wrong, then there is no hope for that being rectified in your life. No man that was refu- that refused to admit that he had sinned ever got forgiveness of that sin. It is a basic prerequisite that if we want God's mercy in a matter, then we have to be truthful with Him about that matter. I'll just put it this way. God's not going to help you be a hypocrite. He's not going to help you lie, not to yourself, not to Him, and not to others. If you want His mercy, you're going to have to be honest about the things that you've done. I've tried and and to, to spectacular failure many times, so don't take this as any sort of uh, lifting myself up as an example, but I've tried to make it a practice in my life when I confess my sin to the Lord to tell it to God in as ugly a terms as I can. If I've lied, I don't tell God that I twisted the truth. I tell Him that I lied. If I've done something dishonest, I don't tell Him, well, you know, I I sort of maybe made an unethical decision and compromise. I just tell Him I did something deceitful. I did something wrong. Why is that? It's a good practice of buffeting your flesh and forcing yourself to be honest with God. I don't want it ever said that I tried to game God. I don't want it ever said that I tried to play God, that I tried to scam God. You might as well go ahead and just be honest because God already knows. We've got to be honest about our behavior. So we see a fundamental principle and then we see an essential prerequisite. But then finally, John gives us a simple process. So, okay, preacher, here's where you've got me. I, I recognize I can't live in sin and walk with God, that God has a desire for me to get right and live right and do right. And I'm willing to be honest with God that not only am I predisposed to sin, I'm bent toward backsliding, but I've done some things in my life here of late that I know don't honor God. And I know the Holy Spirit's dealt with me about, all right, preacher, now what do I do? Let me encourage you by saying that there is a simple process in all of this. And there are three things that are dealt with here. Look at verse 9. We see what is involved in this process. Now, we've already established a few things. You, you, you've got honest about your sin. You recognize it for what it is. You have a desire to get right. So what do I do? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let me go ahead and just blow a hole in the Catholic perspective of this verse. Uh, You say, well, preacher, right there it says we ought to confess our sins to a priest or to another person. No, we ought to confess it to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that's who? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the recipient of this confession. And what is involved in that confession? Well, we have to admit or agree with God about that sin. That tells me this, your sin cannot be dealt with without you coming to God. It's not going to automatically be dealt with by your contrition. Hey, listen, Judas was contrite. Esau was contrite. That didn't do anything to fix their sin problem. It's not enough to feel sorry. You've got to come to God about it. You've got to talk to the Lord about your sin. You've got to admit it to God. It's not enough to tell it to another person. Not even necessary to tell it to another person. In fact, let me just go ahead and cut this off at the pass. Please don't tell it to other people. (laughs) It's not necessary to. 
Uh, it's not essential that you tell it to other people, but it is essential you talk to God about it. No man's ever got right with God without dealing with God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. Now, we equate that with salvation, and I think appropriately so. But can I just say, nowhere does it say that that, that concept quits when you get born again. You're still going to have to deal with Jesus even after you get born again. You're still, you say, preacher, I, I need forgiveness from God the Father. Well, you're going to have to come through Jesus Christ to get it. You're going to have to come to Him, the one you've transgressed against, the one that bought out your sin debt on Calvary. And so we've got to deal with this matter. But it's a very simple thing. We go to the Lord and we say, now, Lord, here's what I've done. This is what you say it is. And I agree with you that that's what it is. Lord, I'm sorry. I want you to forgive me of that sin because I know it displeases you. I know it hurts you. And I know it's hurting my life. Now, you don't have to say it in those exact words. But you're going to have to be honest about it. You're going to have to agree with God about it. Tell the truth to Him about it. And you're going to have to talk to Him about it. It's not going to automatically fix itself you're going to have to do something about it. You say, but preacher, I promise I'll never do it again. That's fine, but that's still not confessing it to him. Well, preacher, I promise I'm going to try to turn a leaf and do better. Uh, Listen, that's great. I expect you to, and God does too. But before you do, you need to go to God and talk to God about it. So we see if we confess our sins, we have this assurance. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let me go ahead and just point out, he's talking to believers. I understand that positionally my sin debt was dealt with at Calvary, that his sins and iniquity, my sins and iniquities he'll remember no more. But as a son of God, I can still, with my sin and with my disobedience, I can still put ought in my fellowship. Remember, that's what John's talking about, right? Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I can still harm my fellowship with Him if I allow sin in my life. But, oh, God's so good. If we'll just come to Him and talk to Him about it, agree with Him about it, ask His forgiveness, He'll take those sins, He'll forgive them, and He'll cleanse them, He'll remove them out of the way of our fellowship. Time would fail me to talk about those two words, faithful and just. He is faithful and He is just. Uh, You say, preacher, what does that mean? Read the whole book of Romans, and you'll get a good handle on how faithful and how just He is to forgive us. So we see what's involved in this process. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 2. What is intended in this process? My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Now, John's anticipation was not that they would never commit sin. uh, Because he goes on to say, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But he is writing this because he knows there will be some that will be quick to charge in and say, oh, you're talking about that easy, believe it, don't cost you anything. Oh, you can just go to God and ask forgiveness and it don't cost you anything. Hey, anybody that has that perspective has never had their heart broken over what sin does to God. Grace does not breed a spirit and disposition like that. The grace of God uh, puts in us a great deep, uh, perspective about, let me just say this, I'm going to try to say it the right way. It gives us a great loathing and hatred of sin and a great love and humility before God. You remember how Paul talks about the repentance of the church at Corinth? He talks about what zeal, what revenge it wrought in them. Listen, when they realize what their sin did to God, they're mad about it. There's angry that sin had done that to him. So this perspective and concept of if, if we believe that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that's going to breed a cavalier attitude within us. John is dispelling that. And he's saying, listen, God doesn't forgive you because he wants to make it easy for you to sin. God forgives you because he wants to make it easy for you to get up and go on and live righteously. What's intended in this process is not that we treat sin lightly, but rather that we treat it with the seriousness 
that it deserves and rather that we get up and pick up and go on and serve the Lord. God forgives you not because He's done with you, but because He's not done with you. Just like He convicts you, not because He's done with you, but because He's not done with you. And it should be in the heart and mind of the believer, if we've had true repentance in our heart, that it does not produce in us a lax attitude about our sin, but rather a reverent attitude towards the Lord concerning our behavior. What's intended is that we sin not. That's God's desire. That's God's design. Not to make sin easy, but rather to make forgiveness Easy. And then notice what's included in this process. And I'll be done tonight. Look at verse number one, the end. He says, and if any man sin, and we will, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two fundamental things John deals with here. He says, when you come to God, you need to be reminded of two things. One, you've got an advocate in the throne room. You can get to God. You can pray and talk to Him and you can get these matters dealt with and addressed. And someone would say, well, preacher, that's great, I can get to God, but what right do I have to even ask forgiveness, broken and sinful as I am? Well, remember the premise for your forgiveness. It is not your promises. It is not your resolve to do better. It's not the new leaves that you've turned over or even the new life that you've promised God. Rather, the premise is the life of Christ poured out on the cross of Calvary for your sin debt and for mine. He is the propitiation. What does that mean? He is the sacrifice that removes sin. You say, well, preacher, what does that tell me? Well, it tells me this. We have everything we need to deal with sin in our life. The only thing that's required is you've got to get honest with God about your sin. You've got to be willing to talk to Him about that sin. It's not going to go away automatically. You can sweep it under the rug, but it ain't going to go anywhere until you come to the Lord and talk about it. When He deals with our sin, He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He's the propitiation. He removes it. He cleanses us from unrighteousness. So the question is in your life, are you serious enough about your walk with the Lord to deal with sin in your life? If you're not, it'll be left undealt with. Sin will lie at the door. But if you're serious about your relationship with the Lord, there's nothing to stop you from coming to God and getting it dealt with tonight. Let's bow together this evening as musician comes to play. I want to give you a few opportunities tonight. Let me go ahead and just lay this out here. Uh, there's not a single person that comes to the altar that anyone is going to imagine must have some deep scarlet sin in their life. Uh, and you say, well, preacher, how do you know that? Because people that are serious about sin want even the small sins dealt with. Not just the big things, but the small things, the areas of their life that maybe other people would never even notice, but they know that it's hurt the heart of God. And so there's no shame in meeting the Lord in this altar. In fact, I'd say this, there's great comfort and great peace in bringing those things to God. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.